1: Hello and welcome to episode 87 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I am Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thanks for downloading and listening. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomena and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies. In its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, also known as a Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on The Observer's Notebook, you can donate to it via Patreon by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook, and for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can also help us out by going to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Observer's Notebook. If you'd like to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $18 a year. For more information, find us at alpo-astronomy.org. And we're also on the Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode of The Observer's Notebook. And now a very special episode. Uh, we're going to talk Beetlejuice and what the heck is going on with that star. Hope you enjoy it. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook Podcast. We have a special guest today, Bob King. Welcome to the podcast, Bob.
0: Well, thank you for having me. Great to be here.
1: Now, you're also known as Astro Bob, right?
0: That is correct. Yeah. Especially around, <laughs> I live in Duluth, Minnesota, and I've been Astro Bob for so long that people just call me that basically when I run into them.
1: That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. So All why right. don't you give everybody a little uh, two-minute introduction to yourself?
0: All right. Uh, well, I've lived in Duluth for many, many years, although I'm originally from Chicago. I worked at the Duluth News Tribune as the photo editor and as a photojournalist for almost 40 years. I retired a year ago. I'm 66 years old. Congratulations and, uh, on that. Thank you very much. Um, I, I have spent some time in retirement writing a book over the past few years. I've written several books about the night sky Uh, They're basic observing guides, and then this past book that I wrote after retirement this past year is called Urban Legends from Space, and it's more about pseudoscience and kind of how to find your way through the jungle of fake science and also about uh, basic misunderstandings about the night sky. So I write a lot. I write a a blog every other week for Sky and Telescope, and I just recently started writing the celestial calendar for the Sky and Telescope magazine. Yeah, that's so I've taken on some additional responsibilities with all this gobs of retirement time I apparently have. And uh, I also enjoy, I really still enjoy uh, writing my own blog, which is called AstroBob. And I've been writing that since 2008. So I've kind of a, I have the visual aspect. I love taking pictures and my career was spent photographing people and sports and events. And I also do a little astrophotography, wide field stuff on the side to illustrate the blogs. Uh, and I write. So I try to stay active. I love skiing, cross-country skiing. I'm oh. just being today. I was out on the trail for about an hour, hour and a half. And uh, I love classical music and walking at night. So <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, of course. And I like observing. My gosh. Uh, I'm perfect. perfect. So, so re-
1: retirement, you're not bored.
0: <laughs> no, there's plenty to do. I that's love good. looking at the night sky, whether that's, uh, you know, like naked eye views, walking in the moonlight. Uh, but I have a 15-inch reflecting telescope and a tenet. Mm -hmm. I spend uh, clear nights uh, observing. I love just going deep sometimes, you know, spending the whole night out there. So I try to mix it up in a lot of different ways.
1: Cool. Now, talk to me a little bit about this book, Urban Legends from Space.
0: Yes. Uh, It it sort of addresses some common myths, I guess, and misconceptions about space. I mean, some of it is really straightforward. It would be to your listeners, like there being a dark side to the moon. So mm-hmm. I try to explain that there is really no such thing as a dark side of the moon, except in right. the music by Pink Floyd. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> and then it goes into other things, too, a little bit on astrology. Uh, it kind of looks at the moon landing and some things where I try to give people some tips and help for when they're caught, when someone says, well, how do you know that? Or I heard this. So they could actually reply back and say, well, did you know that this happened and that happened and that we have 482 pounds of moon rocks? So <laughs> we, we still have left up these uh, reflectors on the moon that to right. this day, at least one of them, astronomers still use to determine the moon's distance. Right. So, uh, Because I think we're lacking in basic science understanding. So I'm just trying to help people along so they have some background and also provide websites and tips on how to get the straight facts. Because to me, science is such an important thing. It's such an important tool. I wonder if it's the most valuable thing that people have ever invented. Yes. It pulls together. It makes things predictable. We can agree on something. It's self-correcting. I love these things about science. So It's
1: interesting they bring up the moon landing too because I do quite a few star parties throughout the year and at least three or four times a year, I'll have somebody ask me, did we really land on the moon? And I'm dumbfounded. I really am by that. I just, you know.
0: What do you tell them? Uh,
1: Yes. (laughs) I I usually joke that, well, that's where Tang came from or something like that. But uh, yeah, it, it still shocks me all these years later.
0: It really does. Yeah, it, uh, it surprises me, too, and even more shocking in a way, although it's people tend to laugh at this, but uh, the flat Earth thing is going oh. around, and they're gaining more and more adherence to believing that the Earth is flat based upon the evidence of our senses, which seems to indicate it's flat, but it's obviously not flat. Um, I should get one of those guys on the podcast.
1: Yes, I think that would be a great idea. <laughs> it would be, be interesting. Yeah, it's one of the chapters of the book, too. And oh, okay.
0: Because sometimes, if someone were to ask, uh, not you or me necessarily, but someone with just a basic knowledge of science, how do you prove the Earth isn't flat? Well, the book goes into ways where you can prove that. You can, in simple ways, explain it to people. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is kind of an amazing thing that we're discussing this.
1: It is. Now, you came to my attention uh, years ago, but you recently wrote an article in in Sky Telescope, uh, their blog, about what's going on with Betelgeuse.
0: Yes, Betelgeuse. What a wonderful star it is. Uh, and it's changing. It's, of course, it's yes. always been known for a long time, more than 100 years, actually since the days of William Herschel, that Betelgeuse is a variable star – um, John Herschel, pardon me. Betelgeuse is a variable star. Uh, its light varies from, well, if you know the constellation Orion, it can be as bright as Rigel, which is opposite Betelgeuse on the other side of the belt. And Rigel's quite bright and much brighter right now than Betelgeuse. It can be as bright as Rigel, or right now, it's nearly as faint as Bellatrix, which is a star of magnitude 1.6 located just several degrees to the right or to the West of Betelgeuse.
1: Okay. Now let's back up a minute for our listeners that don't, because we're the lunar and planetary organization. We are not observers of the stars basically. And so you talk about variable stars. What is a variable star?
0: Well, uh, it's, it's, it's basically what it says. It's a star whose light is not constant. So, Uh, There's all different kinds of variable stars. Most of the stars that we look at in the sky that we're familiar with are not variable. A few familiar ones are somewhat variable, and there are some that are violently variable, and they make for wonderful targets. So Betelgeuse, uh, I think the most familiar kind of variable star, and I think uh, ALPO observers would be familiar with is, well, there are a couple of them, Myra in the constellation of Cetus, the sea model. Okay, we know Myra. Myra pulsates, uh, it expands uh, and fades, and then it contracts and it brightens. And it does this on a very regular schedule of, I don't know the exact period, but it's approximately 330 days. So it's generally quite reliable. So it's a Myra-type variable, Uh, and it's a red giant star. Betelgeuse is a supergiant, a red supergiant. It's also a variable, but it's called a semi-regular variable. So it has a regular period for a while. Sometimes it stops being variable, and it becomes irregular, or it can reach a deeper minimum magnitude one time than another. So it's a little bit all over the map, but there are regular pulsations happening with Betelgeuse as well. Uh, Betelgeuse is sort of unique because it has more than one period. Uh, it doesn't just go up and down like Myra does. Uh, it has a couple of different periods. One lasts about six years, and the other one is 425 days, give or take.
1: Okay, so it has two basic periods. So what what's going on with middle juice right now is
0: out of that norm. What's going on that's unusual is that, uh, of course, it does go through regular fadings and brightenings, uh, but normally during a fade, it might reach magnitude 1.0, 0.9. So for uh, reference... Uh, that would be approximately as bright as Aldebaran. And yeah. Aldebaran so a familiar star. It's the brightest star in Taurus, the Bull, right there in the Hyades. You can find it by shooting a line right through the belt of Orion and going up, and it'll take you to Aldebaran. It's a similar color as Betelgeuse, so it's a very helpful star. So it can be about as bright or as faint as that or a little fainter, but right now it's actually fainter than Aldebaran and it can go up as bright as magnitude 0.2 or so, which is equal to Rigel. So what's unusual now is that what what appears to be happening is that those two cycles, the 425-day one and the 5.9-year one, appear to be coinciding with one another. The minimum or minima are happening at the same time, approximately. So it's reaching an a, a dimmer minimum than normal, uh, what I sort of nickname a super minimum. And that minimum is when you go over the historical record of Betelgeuse, you can go back all the way to, and I use the AABSO, the American Association of Variable Star Observers Database. Okay. You can go back to 1893, and this appears to be the faintest minimum ever recorded. Interesting. Now, yes. what,
1: what, what causes the variable star? What causes the brightness
0: to change? Well, the, the, the cause of it is it's a basic instability in the star. Thank goodness our sun, which is happily burning hydrogen, and located on the main sequence. Main sequence stars are, I guess, normal stars, stable stars. They burn their hydrogen happily. You can count on them being approximately the same brightness every single day. Uh, once a star um, stops burning hydrogen in its core, and it switches over to helium, then things get dicier. Uh, there's sometimes instabilities that occur when uh, it switches to burning the next element in the sequence. Helium. And
1: that's what col- causes the color change of the stars?
0: Yeah, that can cause an expansion, which causes a color change. Okay. So it's, very, it's quite complicated. We don't have to get into that. Specifically, but in the case of Betelgeuse, it is a supergiant star. In its core, it's burning helium. And what happens here is that the core is stable, but the heat that radiates from the core causes the atmosphere or the envelope of the star to expand outward. And as it expands, Betelgeuse becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, kind of like blowing up a balloon. But as it becomes bigger, the gas thins, Mm. and as it thins, it cools, and then the star, or I should say the atmosphere, begins to contract again, and as it contracts, it holds back the heat from the core because it's now closer to the core, and that overheats the star or the envelope, and the envelope then begins to expand once again. So it's almost like a breathing exercise. It expands and it contracts because of how it's uh, feeling the heat and trapping the heat and releasing the heat from the core. And it happens in a periodic way, in a pulsate, so it creates a pulsation. Uh, Betelgeuse is really fascinating because when it's at its brightest, so when the star is kind of shrunken down, the atmosphere is closer to the core, Betelgeuse is 14,000 times as bright as the sun. Wow. And when the thing expands outward and becomes very large, it's only about 7,600 times as bright as the sun. We're talking visual magnitude, all right? So the star really expands and contracts a lot. Most of these pulsating stars, like Myra stars that we talked about earlier, they would have a pulse. Their size change might be from 10 to 20%, from you know bright to dim. Whereas with Betelgeuse... Uh, astronomers think it's about 60% change in its diameter. Hmm. So it is enormous. I mean, when it's on the small side, if you took Betelgeuse and you put it in place of the sun, it would expand out to the orbit of Mars approximately.
1: Now, how how far away is Betelgeuse?
0: Uh, Betelgeuse is about 425 light years away. Okay. All right. So you put it in the place of Mars, or the sun, it expands to Mars. When it's at maximum size, the sucker expands all the way out to Jupiter. So there's not much there in the expansion. I mean, this gas is really, really thin. So it's enormous, but it's very thin. And of course, when it's as big as Jupiter's orbit, then it's cooler. The temperature has dropped and then it begins to shrink again. Interesting. It is a fascinating star. I think one of the most, ex- can I tell you what I think the most exciting thing is about this star? Definitely. Definitely. All right. I think one of the most exciting things is that you can see this star from anywhere. Mm. A lot of things in astronomy, you know, people in the city, they're at a tremendous disadvantage. You say, oh, yeah, I can't believe that I saw this meteor. It was fantastic. You should have seen it. But Betelgeuse is bright enough that you can see it from Chicago. No problem. Just got to get it out from behind a building, you know, just get to the right intersection.
1: And everybody knows Orion. (laughs) Yes. And thanks to Hollywood, everybody knows Beetlejuice.
0: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. What was it, Michael Keaton? Michael Keaton, yeah. Yeah, and I think they spelled it, though, Beetlejuice. Yeah. yeah. Is, yeah. Did they? I think they did. Yeah, it was really good. And the thing is, it was, of course, the name really does come from the start, too. Although some people think it's the opposite. Is that why they named that star? Yeah, uh, funny. But uh, what's, what's so cool about Beetlejuice is that you can see it from the city. Anybody can view it, which means anybody can actually watch these light variations mm-hmm. and be their own. They could create their own light curve if they wanted to, just by jotting down on a piece of paper, how bright Betelgeuse looks. And we uh, determine a brightness by using the magnitude scale. So that's, and uh, I, I can send you a photo or certainly we can, I've got a photo up that shows two stars because that's all you need right now to determine the brightness of Betelgeuse. Okay. The star Aldebaran, right, that we touched on, Uh, that's the magnitude 0.9, and it's above Orion right there with the Hyades. And then to the right of Betelgeuse is Bellatrix, and Bellatrix is 1.6. You've got a separation of 7 tenths of a magnitude. Does that make sense? Yes. So if you look at Betelgeuse and you compare it, to either of those two stars, you go back and forth and back and forth, and you determine that it's a tiny bit closer to Aldebaran than it is to Bellatrix, well, then you can, uh, going by those tenths, you can say that it is approximately magnitude 1.2 or 1.3. You wait a week or a couple of weeks, you go out again, and you make another comparison, and you might discover that it's now 1.1 and 1.0, and you can follow it right up. And as you're following Betelgeuse, I know on a piece of paper it's just a number, but you're actually seeing with your own eye these amazing pulsations that are happening on this enormous star. So the
1: magnitude is pulsating right now? It's not steadily getting dimmer?
0: um, It has been getting dimmer. Uh, Back in October, I believe the star reached about magnitude 0.5. So anybody that went out back in October looked up, they would say, oh, my gosh, it is obviously brighter than Aldebaran, clearly, you know, because Aldebaran 0.9 and Betelgeuse was 0.5.
1: Yeah, I think this Whereas first came now, to the attention in October, didn't it, where people started talking about it?
0: Well, uh, not in October because it was reaching a, not an unusual maximum, okay. magnitude, but they started talking about it, as far as I can tell, in early December. Okay when it began fading noticeably and it started reaching historical lows of magnitude 1.1, 1.2. And uh, right now it's around 1.3, 1.4. It is definitely dimmer and anybody can see that it's similar to Bellatrix right now. I mean, if you just do that, that's kind of all you need. And then compare it to Aldebaran and then watch what happens over the coming weeks and months. It's so cool because it's happening right in the middle of winter. Right. It'll be visible. What, high, in the, in the high in the sky. High in the sky, up there, easy to see. Um, there's one t- uh, additional tip, though, that I'd like to give when you do make an estimate of the brightness using those two stars, is there's a weird thing that happens when we look at red stars with our eyes. Uh, if you stare at a red star, it will become brighter. Huh. Uh, it has to do with how what happens in the cells within our eyes so the way to make a magnitude estimate especially of a red star is to look at it quickly flip back and forth and then you don't notice the color as much do you wear glasses yeah are you nearsighted no farsighted yep well that's great that's great for astronomy to be (laughs) (laughs) sighted. Well,
1: it's it's interesting because in my years, I've done a lot of uh, comet observing and doing me- visual magnitude estimates of comets. Yeah. And the, me- and the mes- method I used with that was looking at a comet like through binoculars. And then I would defocus the stars around it. So yes. the star would be the same diameter as the comet and find the star that closest brightness to that comet. So. It's, it's, it's really fun to do because comets were dynamic, are dynamic that way with the brightness, and that's a valuable thing to
0: measure. Yes, and you know, I love that you mentioned that about comets. Um, I love comets. I am, I am crazier about comets than I am about Betelgeuse, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is, that is the great way to estimate a magnitude. But when you're looking at Betelgeuse, if you're nearsighted, you have a, a little bit of an advantage here. Because I'm nearsighted. I take my glasses off and I can look at the star and it expands all the stars into discs, the very same way that you defocus comets. Uh, You see? And then I look up and then the color is not as obvious and the bigger disc makes it much easier to make that magnitude. Well, I'm,
1: I'm colorblind red and green. I wonder what that would do. I don't know. If that would happen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, look fast and it doesn't matter. There you <laughs> go. So yeah, it's a wonderful star. Anybody can watch these changes. I think that's one of the most exciting things about the heavens in any way. And uh, one of my, the main reason, one of the main reasons I'm, I love comets so much is because I love seeing variability, right? Yep. We like changes in the sky.
1: That's why I'm a planetary guy.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you've got Mars you, and Ju. I mean, there's so much going on that can Jupiter change. Jupiter
1: changes in 20 minutes in a night. So it's, yeah. yeah now, yes. have we observed this type of event before?
0: Uh, we have seen uh, definitely some lower than normal minimums or minima for Betelgeuse. Uh, I took a look at the graph. I spoke to uh, one of the people over at the AAVSO, and she plotted out some data and in going over that data, I discovered that there have been two recent minima that are similar to the current one, but not as dim. Back in 19, or pardon me, 2008, uh, that was probably the most recent one. And the star dipped to like magnitude 1, 1, pardon me, 1.0, 1. 1. 1.1. 1. And then it also dipped back down in about 1988. And there have been other minima too, like back in the 40s and the 20s and so okay. forth. But this one really stands out, so um, it makes it a bit exceptional, and I think it's caused quite a stir, not just in the astronomy community, but I think actually more so in just kind of the hobbyist community.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah.
0: And the casual you know, like the casual people who just sort of check in, like Beetlejuice. You mean the one that's going to blow up? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, any unusual behavior, I think it's natural for us to think, hey. Maybe this is it. Mm-hmm. Maybe this thing is going to blow. So I've seen some speculation about that. Have you online? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But it, it could happen tonight, or it could happen in six hundred fifty years.
0: Yeah, or even a hundred thousand years.
1: hundred thousand years. Yeah, now, yeah. When you, now, when you say it, the star is going to blow up, we're talking a nova, supernova, right?
0: Oh, uh, we're yeah, definitely talking. Uh, those are two quite distinct things: novas and supernovas. Well,
1: what are the differences supernovas between the two?
0: What's the difference oh the difference is uh in a supernova well there's a, there's several different kinds of supernovas but in a supernova first of all the star is completely obliterated right and you might have a leftover piece you might have a neutron star or possibly a black hole left over it would
1: be that will that be like the crab nebula
0: that'd be like the crab nebula and okay. who knows if When I don't think it's an if, definitely Betelgeuse is almost certainly going to blow up as a supernova. It could leave a neutron star, it could leave a black hole in its wake as a remnant. Okay, besides that incredible expanding cloud of gas and dust that uh, we can see in the Crab Nebula, for instance. Uh, So in that, with the case of a large star like that, basically obliterated, right? And the star does this all on its own. Uh, runs out of fuel in the core, Uh, it burns all all the way through these different elements. If Betelgeuse is on helium now, it'll go to carbon and oxygen and neon magnesium and silicon, and it'll end up with iron in its core, because each step keeps moving it to building more complicated elements until it reaches iron, and you cannot fuse iron to create energy. So... The star suddenly has no pushback from the heat and the pressure created by nuclear burning, fusion. So as a result, that enormous star just collapses in on itself. And when the material reaches the core, it bounces back, creates this enormous shockwave, and it just rips the star apart in a massive explosive event. And that's a supernova. I'm sorry if that was too long, but I wanted to set no, that's, that
1: that's, No, that, that gives a good dis- description of what we're talking about here.
0: But that's one kind of supernova. There are other supernovae that occur in binary stars where there's a white dwarf and there's a companion and the white dwarf explodes and burns. In a nova, nova are more gentle, I guess you could say, gentler. Uh, you've got a white dwarf star and you've got uh, like a sun-like star revolving around it. And the white dwarf is pulling, they're orbiting very close to one another, so close that the gravity of the dwarf draws material from the normal star. And it swirls it through a disk around the dwarf called an accretion disk, and then that's funneled down to the surface of the dwarf. The dwarf is extremely hot. When enough material accumulates on the surface of that little Earth sized star, It burns, suddenly burns. Uh, It fuses in a big blast, and that blast brightens the star many thousands of times. And it burns its, it, it basically burns it off, but the star remains intact. So novas always occur in binary stars, close binary star systems. And the star remains after the explosion, and it starts sucking matter. For a second, a third, a tenth time from its companion. So you can have repeats of novae. You might see one now, and then 10,000 years from now, it will have another nova outburst. So that's basically the difference between the two. The star remains, you got a binary system. Okay. Supernova, star is gone, you're done. In that, in the supergiant star type supernova, and those are called type two supernovas. Okay. Uh, the ones involving white dwarfs, the dwarf burns, blows up. Those are type 1, type
1: 1A. All right. Now, how long is it going to take for this to
0: occur? For Beetlejuice to blow up? Yeah. Oh, uh, I think uh, 1130 this evening. (laughs) (laughs) I better Uh, better get this podcast done and out there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm pretty sure it's
1: going to happen. Nobody knows, right?
0: nobody really okay
1: knows. yeah because i've been asked that a number of times and i'm sure you probably have as well and
0: no it's 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 a great question because you know we really would like to know when the star is going to go but of course it's a star and it's such a it, it's, it'll do what it likes to do at, right. in its own time but where it is in its evolution as best as we can determine uh, it's going to be sometime within the next 100,000 years. <laughs> what I like about the estimate, though, is that that could be at 1130 this evening. It could be. <laughs> or could be 11... while
1: we're talking right now. I mean, it's like, like... I
0: know, and it's cloudy. I'm missing it.
1: Uh, same here, yeah. Now, um, wow. What can we do as astronomers in the meantime?
0: Well, I think uh, we can keep our eyes on it, Right. Uh, I would encourage people to either observe it personally for themselves. You could do that. Or join the AAVSO and submit your data. It is very exciting. You submit your data, your magnitude estimates. That's really what it comes down to. And you could use your naked eye in the case of Betelgeuse. Of course, there are many, many variables where you need a small telescope to see. But Betelgeuse is so nice because it's bright. You submit it to the AAVSO. They put all of that data together to create a light curve. And that light curve helps us understand the behavior of the star. So in a very small way, each person can make a contribution to science by submitting their data to the organization. That's one way to do it. If you don't want to do it that way, no problem. You can just watch it on your own. So... And in the meantime, of course, astronomers are watching the star very closely because anytime an object in the sky does something unusual, it's saying, hey, look at me, look at me, and we are going to look at you because we're going to understand you better. Because right now, Betelgeuse is doing something we didn't know it could do. Right. So we're learning more about it. And when we come to learn more about these objects, we understand stellar evolution better, all right? We understand our universe better. So I think what it all boils down to is just the basic art of observing is still alive and well. And I love that part of astronomy, that we can still make a difference, even if it's just to ourselves and our friends to just watch on things, you know?
1: Now, you're a member of the ABSO? I am, yes. Talk to us about the organization, because I've never had anybody on the podcast that was a member. So just give us a little uh, five-minute introduction to what it is.
0: Well, it's, uh, yes, the American Association of Variable Star Observers. And when you become a member, but actually you can go to their site, and they have lots of resources that are available for nothing, for free. For instance, if you hear of a certain variable star or you read about it, you can go to Uh They've got a little box down there. You just type in the name of the star, and you can click on Make a Chart. And it'll make you a chart of that star and show stars around it with their magnitudes. Really? Yes, and it's absolutely free. just print it out in your printer, you bring it outside, and you can come to know the star, variable stars, that way. Interesting. So, yeah, it's all for free. Uh, And then if you're a member, there's, you know, you get notices, alert notices, if there's unusual behavior of a star or if there's a bright supernova that appears in a galaxy, uh, you will get an alert. And then, if you remember, you can contribute your data, and you could do it all online. There's no paper. It used to be there was paper; uh, you would send in your results, but now you just go online, and you can just tap in your observation uh, five minutes after you've made it. You can go so online
1: and, forms. You can use. Yeah,
0: you know, just go right. Yes, exactly. Online form, and it's in there, and your name is in there, and then you can create. This is what's really cool. You can create a light curve. You can go into. It'll say there's a little spot to make a light curve. You just type in the star's name, click it, and then you can say, I want a light curve over the next or over the past year or over the past 30 years. You can even make a light curve that includes just your observations. So, and then print that out. So in other words, you're really getting involved in a scientific way, but it's easy. It's just using your eyes is bottom line about it. And for um, people who are listening who aren't familiar with what a light curve is, it's just a curve showing the stars changing light. So at the bottom of the curve, that would be the dimmest. When it hits the top, it's the brightest. And sometimes you can see just fascinating behavior, repeating and non-repeating on a star. And of course that makes professional astronomers very excited because they use AAVSO data in their papers. And it's always possible that you your name might pop up in one of those scientific papers as well. And I know a couple of people that's happened to, and I want to tell you it's one of the greatest thrills of their life to have, you know, contributed something to science. That, that's
1: very so true. That's a little I, bit of a Yeah, We have a lot of pro am collaboration in the ALPO as well. And it's, it's exciting exactly. when you see your name used in a professional paper. It really is.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. But uh, again, I think it's like anything in nature. To me, uh, astronomy, all of the stars, everything is just part of nature. I love taking walks in the woods as well. I like <laughs> identifying flowers. I eat mushrooms. My wife is terrified, but I still <laughs> identify. But every time you pay attention to something in nature, uh, you you get to know it, and I think getting to know, especially something really cosmic like that and far away, it's not like the cosmos. It's it's not something you just look at and go, "Wow, that's really far away." Grant, that's part of the joy of looking at the night sky. True, but. Actually, knowing a little bit about those stars, oh my gosh, it just makes... It illuminates and then deepens your understanding and appreciation of the sky. Fantastic. So, yeah, for all those reasons. Hey, do you want to know how bright Betelgeuse will be when it does become a super? Yes,
1: I really do. I'm hoping you
0: had that answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, it's, it's going to get really, really, really bright. Uh It will... Have you ever seen uh, an iridium satellite flare? Oh, yeah. One of those satellites? with the iridiums? Yeah. Yeah, of, of course. Um, so uh, sometimes, almost all of those now have been deorbited. I think there might only be one left or something like that. But back in the day, there were occasional times when the brightest flares would reach magnitude minus eight, which is much brighter than Venus. And when I would see those, it felt like, I was going to fall over, like yeah. it was going to push me down. <laughs> well, Betelgeuse, uh, when it becomes a supernova, should be a bra. Uh, pardon me, about as bright as the gibbous moon. Wow! And if you look up the gibbous moon, uh, the magnitude of it is between about minus ten to minus twelve in that range.
1: And you can see the gibbous moon in the daytime. So, thereby. So- <laughs>
0: You will have no problem seeing Betelgeuse in the daytime. You follow it day and night. And just think of this, though. There's so many cool things about this. The star will be so bright that it will cast shadows, just the way the gibbous moon does. However, the shadows will look quite different from the moon shadows, because the moon is an extended object. It's a half degree in diameter. Mm -hmm. So when you see a shadow cast by the moon or the sun, it has a darker core and a fuzzy penumbral outline because you're seeing an extended object illuminate or make a shadow. Betelgeuse will be as bright as the moon, but it'll be a point source. It'll be like an LED in the sky. So the shadows it will create will be sharp edged. There'll be no light leaking around from a big disk the way the moon's a disc, right? Won't leak into the edge of the shadows. So instead, you'll just have this sharp outlined shadow. I can't wait.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, me, me, me too. I just now, if it if it does do that, do we have uh, a point of reference or, or past data to say how long it might last?
0: Yes, I guess you could. Yes, we do have. Uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of supernovae that are discovered. Every single year. I mean, it is, a number has just dramatically increased with these various supernova surveys. Uh, I wish I could recall it exactly, a thousand. uh, It's just hundreds every year. And those are well-studied. And based on those, a typical super, have you seen a supernova through your telescope? Yes, I have. Uh, So, all right, a bright supernova, uh, usually it reaches a, sort of a peak for a little bit and then it'll brighten further and then it'll gradually fade and they vary quite a bit but a typical bright supernova from a supergiant star would certainly last for months it would be visible for months if not and it'll still be active and brighter than normal i would think for a couple of years or more Hard to say exactly, but yeah, uh, the public's view of a supernova might be more like a fireworks on the 4th of July. Right. Which is this is
1: big explosion. Well, and how is that going to affect That's the earth it. too? I've, I've heard that. Well, how, are we going to get hit with this cosmic wave of energy and no. it's well, So I've, you haven't heard that.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, I've heard that we're okay. I've heard that. Yeah, the,
1: I think we're far enough away. Yeah. It's said <laughs> what 425 light years or something like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think I think we're okay. I had yeah. somebody ask uh, asked me whether uh, they would need eclipse glasses to view Beetlejuice, huh. and I didn't think so. I don't think you need that because no. you know, a tremendous distance involved. But the thought of seeing something that was magnitude minus twelve through oh. a telescope, a star, it just blows me away. Yeah,
1: I'd, I'd have to reevaluate the greatest things I've seen through a telescope.
0: <laughs> <laughs> me too. Me too. Yeah,
1: That's,
0: oh, I love that about astronomy. Who knows? Who knew? Um, but the thing is, all throughout this, at least in an amateur telescope, Betelgeuse will look like a point. It will just—it's still so far away that it we won't see a, point. a disc. Yeah, you will not see a disc. I suppose after a time, that expanding circumstellar shell, the the, the uh, remnant will expand, and if we're lucky enough, uh, we'll have something like a crab nebula left over. That would be exciting. Oh, that would be so great. You know, until the, yeah, future observers would be able because to that
1: was that. in the 1600s, and that was observed by the Chinese. Was it 1600s or before then? That? that was 1054. 10,
0: 1054.
1: That's right. That, yeah. that was, yeah. and yeah. That was the Chinese that actually observed that, right?
0: Yes, the Chinese observed it. And have you ever been out to Chaco Canyon? No, to I have Drawing is made. Mm-mm. There's a. No one knows for sure, of course, but there is a uh, on a cliff overhang. You take this really. Close. It's it's a really remote feeling to the path that you get through the mountains and the valleys and then you get to this place and there's an overhang above you and you're facing the overhang is at your back you're facing east all right and above you is a star like in red there's a a big star like a giant asterisk and next to it is the outline of the crescent moon and and then there's another figure in there too but no one knows but it From that vantage point, it is easy to imagine seeing supernova in July of 1054 when it went off. Hmm. it went off in Taurus, the crescent moon was in the vicinity at that time. Wow. So it's easy to say, wow, could it have been, could an artist have depicted this supernova scene on the underside of this cliff? It was very, it was a moving, it was a moment for me when I was there.
1: That's very interesting.
0: Yes, it, it, it's, it's one of those astronomical pilgrimages uh-huh. doing if you're in New Mexico okay yeah have to do so, that. but yeah the Chinese actually did all the data it's sort of amazing that nothing has come through from the medieval era in Europe that they' mm. you know that no one bothered to record it or dismissed it true unless that's changed. Yes, yes. Another wow. good thing about science. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Bob, this is really entertaining. I want to thank you for coming on. Do you have anything else you'd like to add?
0: Well, let's see. Uh, uh, I would like to, the name, just the name Beetlejuice. Okay. Where it comes from is sort of fun. It's actually a corrupted Arabic name. No surprise. A lot of the stars are, uh, are Arabic name. Uh, whereas constellations uh, Greek and Latin, but uh, it's it comes from the Yad al Jauza. Does that sound like Beetlejuice a little bit? Yad mm-hmm. al Jauza. Okay, I, I <laughs> I'll totally, take your
1: word for it. I'm
0: probably totally mispronouncing that. A thousand pardons. But uh, Yad al Jauza was an important constellation among the Arabic peoples, basically Orion, and they knew it as the star name is called the Hand of the. Uh, the central one, the important central figure. So, whether that's interesting, I don't know, but uh, it's kind <laughs> of the corruption of the hand of the great central figure, which was Orion. Okay. And it's uh, that little hand is dishing us out some fascinating fun these past few weeks. It is. It's 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 a
1: lot. Of, it's very exciting. Now, are your your books are available on Amazon?
0: They're on Amazon. They're in Indie Books, and you okay. can pick them up at Barnes and Noble as well. And if people need to, con- I can give you some contacts too, if you're interested in that. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter at okay. Astro, Astro underscore BK for Bob King. And then my blog is out there. It's just called AstroBob. You can look that up and Google it easily enough. And I'm on Sky and Telescope on the website on their blog. Uh, it's called Explore the Night. There's a little column there, a little header with some of the blogs, the most recent ones underneath it. So. I love to observe, and I love being out under the night sky, and I wish I could live to be as old as Beetlejuice. <laughs> <laughs> <So I> could, <laughs> take more in. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. Yes.
1: Bob, I really want to thank you again for coming on the podcast today. This was very entertaining and perfect timing, and you're a great guest. I'll have you on for something else sometime.
0: And thank you so much for having me. It has been a lot of fun for me, Tim. I appreciate it so much. All right.
1: Well, that was fun. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Bob, uh, Bob King, what a great guest. And please go on Twitter, go on uh, Facebook, subscribe to his blog post. It's really entertaining and it's great information in there. Bob, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. And you can listen to us on iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, and Amazon Echo. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon. You can get up to $35 a month where you see one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I want to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Seedentop, for his generous support of The Observer's Notebook. The link for Patreon as well as the link for the ALPO is in the show notes. And I also want to thank Tom Williams. Tom came on the podcast episode 10. Uh, he gave, oh, to date is the longest podcast we've had so far. It's about 90 minutes. But it's the history of amateur astronomy and amateur astronomy clubs in the U.S. He sent us a very generous donation, not through Patreon, but he just sent me a check. And trust me, every little bit helps. I was blown away by it. And Tom, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at ObserversNBPod. Until next time, I hope that you'll always have clear and skinny, steady skies. Thanks for listening.